The Engineer's Thumb by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Dramatised by Grant Eustace with Roy Marsden as Sherlock Holmes and John Moffat as Dr. Watson. Of all the problems which have been submitted to my friend Sherlock Holmes for solution, there were only two which I was the means of introducing to his notice. One, that of Colonel Warburton's madness, may have afforded a finer field for an acute and original observer, but the other was so strange in its inception and so dramatic in its details that it is the more worthy of being placed on record. It was in the summer of 1889, not long after my marriage, that the events occurred. I had returned to civil practice and happened to live at no very great distance from Paddington Station. As a result of that, and of curing an official of a painful and lingering disease, I had a few patients referred to me by the railway company. It was one of those who awaited me in my consulting room one morning, a little before seven o'clock. I'm sorry to awaken you so early, Doctor. Mm. The man was quietly dressed in a suit of tweed. Round one of his hands he had a handkerchief wrapped, which was mottled all over with bloodstains. He was young, not more than five and twenty, with a strong masculine face. But he was exceedingly pale. I've had a very serious accident during the night. I came in by train this morning, and on inquiring at Paddington where I might find a doctor, a worthy fellow very kindly escorted me here. The maid had left his card upon the side table. Mr. Victor Hathaway, hydraulic engineer, 16A Victoria Street, was inscribed upon it. And I regret I've kept you waiting, especially after a night journey, which is itself a monotonous occupation. Oh, my night could not be called monotonous. <laughs> ah, here, here, here. Drink some of this brandy. Ah. Oh, that's better. I fear I've been making a fool of myself. No, 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 not at all. Now, perhaps you'd best attend to my thumb. When he unwound the handkerchief and held out his hand, even my hardened nerves shuddered to look at it. There were four protruding fingers and a horrible red spongy surface where the thumb should have Good been. Heavens. This is a terrible injury. It must have bled considerably. Yes. I fainted when it was done. I must have been senseless for a long time. When I came to, it was still bleeding. So I tied one end of my handkerchief very tightly round the wrist and braced it up with a twig. Oh, excellent. You have the makings of a surgeon. It is a question of hydraulics, you see, and so came within my own province. This has been done by a very heavy and sharp instrument. A thing like a cleaver. Hmm. An accident, I presume. By no means. What? A murderous attack. Very murderous indeed. I sponged the wound, cleaned it, dressed it, and finally covered it over with bandages. Oh, that's capital. Between your brandy and your doctoring, I feel a new man. I was very weak, but then I've had a good deal to go through. Oh, perhaps you had better not speak of the matter. It is evidently trying to your nerves. No, not now. Anyway, I shall have to tell my tale to the police... But if it were not for the convincing evidence of this wound of mine, I should be very surprised indeed if they believed my statement. For it is an extraordinary one, and I have not much in the way of proof with which to back it up. Well, if it's anything in the nature of a problem to be solved, I would strongly recommend your seeing my friend Mr. Sherlock Holmes before the official police. 
I've heard of that fellow. Could you give me an introduction to him? I'll do better. I'll take you round to him myself. I should be immensely obliged to you. Holmes was, as I expected, lounging about in his sitting room in his dressing gown, smoking his before-breakfast pipe. He ordered fresh rashers and eggs, and we all sat down to a hearty meal. When it was concluded, he settled our new acquaintance upon the sofa. It is easy to see that your experience has been a common one, Mr. Hatherley. Indeed. Uh, pray lie down there and tell us what you can, but stop when you're tired. Thank you, but I've felt another man since the doctor bandaged me, and I think your breakfast has completed the cure. Holmes sat in his big armchair with the weary, heavy-lidded expression which I knew veiled his keen and eager nature, and I sat opposite him. By profession, I am a hydraulic engineer. Two years ago, having served my apprenticeship and having come into a fair sum of money through my poor father's death, I determined to start in business for myself. Ah. It was an exceptionally dreary experience. During two years, I've had three consultations and one small job, and my gross takings amount to £27, 10 shillings. Mm -hmm. And then, yesterday, a tall, thin, bright-eyed, confident gentleman came into my office. His card gave his name as Colonel Lysander Stark. Mr. Hatherley? Good morning, Colonel. You have been recommended to me as being a man who is not only capable in his profession, but also discreet and able to keep a secret. May I ask who it was who gave me so good a character? It is of no matter. But I have it from the same source that you are an orphan and a bachelor and reside alone in London. That is quite correct, but you will excuse me if I say I cannot see how all that bears upon my professional qualifications. You will find that all I say is really to the point. I have a commission for you, but absolute secrecy is essential. Absolute secrecy, you understand? And we may expect more from a man who is alone than from one who lives in the bosom of his family. If I promise to keep a secret, you may absolutely depend upon my doing so. You do promise, then? Yes, I do. Absolute and complete silence, before, during, and after? I have already given you my word. Then we can talk. I beg that you will state your business, sir. My time is of value. How would 50 guineas for a night's walk suit you? Most admirably. I say a night's walk, but an hour's would be nearer the mark. I simply want your opinion about a hydraulic stamping machine which has got out of gear. If you show us what is wrong, we shall soon set it right. An unusual commission, when the work appears to be light and the pay munificent. Precisely so, Mr. Holmes. And I must add that something akin to fear had begun to rise within me at the strange manner of this man. But you still resolved to go. I could not but think of the fifty guineas and of how very useful they would be to me. Where were you to go? To Iford in Berkshire, a little place near the borders of Oxfordshire. But the colonel stipulated I should travel down from Paddington on the last train. That would bring you into Iford at about 11.15, and I shall come down in a carriage to meet you. There is a drive, then? Oh, yes. Our little place is quite out in the country. It is a good seven miles from Iford Station. Then we can hardly get there before midnight. So? I suppose there's no chance of a train back, so I should be compelled to stop the night. Oh, yes. We could easily give you a shakedown. Uh, that is very awkward. Could I not come down at some more convenient hour? We have judged it best that you should come late. 
It is to recompense you for any inconvenience that we are paying you, a young and unknown man, a fee which would buy an opinion from the very heads of your profession. Still, of course, if you would like to draw out of this business, there is plenty of time to do so. But the fee was too enticing to refuse. I'm afraid it was, Mr. Holmes. And, of course, he knew it would be. But did you not wish to understand more clearly what it was you were to do? I did, and asked precisely that question. It seemed the Colonel had discovered a deposit of fuller's earth on his land. It was a comparatively small one which he was working in order to provide the money to buy the land of his neighbours, under which lie much larger deposits. And do they know of this valuable product under their land? No. Mm. That, he said, was why secrecy was so important in the matter. Once it became known that hydraulic engineers were coming to the house, the facts would come out and all chance of purchasing the land would be lost. Mm. But it's not entirely clear to me what use could be made of a hydraulic press in excavating Fuller's earth, which, as I understand, is dug out like gravel from a pit. Quite. But he said they had their own process which compressed the earth into bricks so as to be able to remove them without revealing what they were. And did you think that a sufficient explanation? I could not believe so. But, on the other hand, the fee was at least tenfold what I should have asked had I set a price upon my own services. And so you set out at the appointed time? I did. I reached the little dimlit station of Eiford after eleven o'clock. I was the only passenger who got out there, and there was no one on the platform save a single sleepy porter. As I passed out through the wicket gate, however, I found my acquaintance of the morning waiting in the shadow upon the other side. The carriage is here, Mr. Hatterley. Thank you. Oh, quickly. Yes, yes, of course. He hurried me into it, drew up the windows on either side, tapped on the woodwork, and away we went as hard as the horse could go. One horse? Yes, only one. Hmm. Did you observe the colour? Yes, I saw it from the sidelights as I stepped in. It was a chestnut. Tired looking or fresh? Oh, fresh and glossy. Thank you. Hmm. Oh, I I'm sorry to have interrupted you. Pray continue your most interesting statement. We drove for at least an hour. Colonel Stark had said that it was only seven miles, but I should think it must have been nearer twelve. On good roads or bad? Not very good. We lurched and jolted terribly. And could you not see where you were being driven? I tried to look out of the windows, but they were made of frosted glass, and I could make out nothing save an occasional blur of a passing light. The young engineer related how the bumping of the road was finally exchanged for the crisp smoothness of a gravel drive. And then his narrative took a more sinister turn. When they stopped, Colonel Stark sprang out and hurried Hatherley straight into the house so that he failed to catch even a fleeting glimpse of the front of it. Once inside, the door slammed heavily behind them. Then the darkness of the hall was lit by an oil lamp held by a pretty young woman who appeared from a passage. She spoke a few words in a foreign tongue to the colonel, as if asking a question. When my companion answered, she gave such a start that the lamp nearly fell from her hand. He took the lamp from her, pushed her away, and walked back towards me. Perhaps you will have the kindness to wait in this room for a few minutes. Certainly. I shall not keep you waiting an instant. Could you see enough to examine your surroundings? The colonel had left the lamp. It was a plainly furnished room, with a round table in the centre on which several books were scattered. I have no skill in languages, but I could see they were in German. Oh, were there no windows? One, but it was shuttered and barred. Oh, and no sounds at all? None. Everything was deadly still. 
It was quite certain from that absolute stillness that we were in the country. The next surprise for Hatherley was when the door swung quietly open again and the woman was standing in the aperture. He could see that she was sick with fear and her frightened eyes kept glancing back into the gloom behind her. I go. I should not stay here. There's no good for you to do. But, madam, I have not yet done what I came for. I cannot possibly leave until I've seen the machine. It is not worth your while to wait. You can pass through the door. No one hinders. Oh, for the love of heaven, do not hesitate. Get away before it is too late. But is there some danger, madam? Too late. They are coming back. They must not find me here. Colonel Stark was now accompanied by a short, thick-set, bearded man who remained silent. Mm. Indeed, I never heard him speak at all. This is Mr. Ferguson, my secretary and manager. How do you do? By the way, I was under the impression that I left this door shut just now. I fear you have felt the draught. On the contrary, I found the room to be a little close, so I opened the door. I see. Let us proceed to business, then. Mr. Ferguson and I will take you to see the machine. I had better get my hat. There is no need. It is in the house. What? You dig fuller's earth in the house? No, no. This is only where we compress it. But never mind that. All we wish you to do is to examine the machine and to let us know what is wrong with it. Did you indeed stay within the house? Yes. We walked through a labyrinth of corridors and passages, the colonel in front of me holding the oil lamp, the silent Ferguson behind me. And could you make out anything of the house while you walked? It was old and ill-kept. Mm. No carpets, no sign of any furniture, plaster peeling off the walls and damp breaking through. Mm. A very singular country home. Go on. We stopped at last before a low door which the colonel unlocked. Within was a small square room. Three of us could hardly get in at one time, so Ferguson remained outside. We are now actually inside the hydraulic press. It would be a particularly unpleasant thing for us if anyone were to turn it on. <laughs> so the ceiling of this small chamber is the end of the descending piston? Correct. It comes down with the force of many tons upon this metal floor. Unfortunately, while the machine walks readily enough, it has lost some of its force. We wish you to show us how we can set it right. It was clear from Hathaly's narrative that unsettled as he had been by the woman's warning, his professional instincts took over at this moment. Before long, he had located the loss of pressure in this giant press to a leaking seal in a driving rod and pointed out to his companions how they should proceed to rectify the fault. Then he made a mistake. Wanting to satisfy his curiosity about the machine, he examined it more closely and stooped to pick up a crust of metallic deposit from the metal floor. Yeah. When he turned round, he found himself face to face with the colonel. What are you doing? I was admiring your fuller's earth. I think I should be better able to advise you as to your machine if I knew the exact purpose for which it is used. Very well. You shall know all about the machine. Colonel? Colonel? Colonel! Open this door! Colonel! The only reply which Let the poor go! engineer received was the sudden clank of levers and the swish of air from the leak he had found in the driving rod. The colonel had set the engine to work. By the light of the oil lamp, 
Cathalie could see that the black ceiling was coming down upon him. Slowly, jerkily, but as none knew better than he, with a force that must within a minute grind him to a shapeless pulp. Beat upon the door as he might, it offered no escape. But although floor and ceiling were made of metal, the walls of the chamber were made of wood. He was already unable to stand upright when he saw a thin line of yellow light opening up between two boards in one of the walls. He put all his weight against this weakness and forced the gap large enough to squeeze through. As behind him, the two slabs of the metal press clanged together and crushed the lamp as they would have crushed him. They will be here in a moment. Oh, madam, I should have heeded your warning. Do not waste this so precious time, but come. They will see that you are not there. Follow me. Look in that room, Ferguson. Oh, quickly, they are not far behind. In here. You must jump. It must be so, Oh, it is your only chance. It will kill you. Oh, there he is. Oh, no, no, Fritz. You said never again. You are mad, Elisa. Let go of me. This one will be silent. He has seen too much. Let me pass, I say. Now, we will put a stop to this. Oh, jump, for God's sake. Oh, Oh, no. Oh, my God. With what did he attack you? It looked like a butcher's cleaver. Another fraction of a second, and I would have dropped clear before he reached the window. But were you not hurt in the fall? No, just shaken. So I picked myself up and rushed off among the bushes as fast as I could. Yes, but the, the wound on your hand... Only when I reached the bushes and suddenly felt sick and dizzy did I realise fully what had happened. Remarkable. I endeavoured to tie my handkerchief round the wound, but there came a sudden buzzing in my ears, and I fell in a dead faint among the rose bushes. How long did you remain unconscious? It must have been some hours. Morning was breaking when I came to. And then, imagine my astonishment when I could see neither house nor garden when I looked around. Then where on earth were you? I'd been lying in a hedge beside the high road. And the nearest building proved to be the very station at which I'd arrived the previous night. And so you made your way back to London? I made inquiries at the station first, of the same porter I'd seen the night before, but the name of Colonel Lysander Stark meant nothing to him, nor had he observed a carriage the night before. So, now, Mr. Holmes, I put the case into your hands and shall do exactly what you advise. Mm. Uh, Watson, Hmm? will you hand me down the commonplace book on the shelf above your head? Yes, yes, of course. Uh, This one? Uh, No, 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 the the one next to it. Ah, Ah. yes. Thank you. There's um, there's an advertisement here that will interest you, Mr. Hatherley. It appeared in all the papers about a year ago. Um, yes, here. Yeah. Listen to this. Lost on the ninth instant. Mr. Jeremiah Hayling, aged 26, a hydraulic engineer. Left his lodgings at 10 o'clock at night and has not been heard of since. Was dressed in... Um, well, etc., etc. Ah... You see, I fancy that represents the last time that the Colonel needed to have his machine overhauled. Good heavens. And was that what the Colonel meant by again? Undoubtedly. Well, it's quite clear that the Colonel is a cool and desperate man Mm -hmm. who is absolutely determined that nothing should stand in the way of his little game. 
Well, every moment now is precious. So if you feel equal to it, we shall go down to Scotland Yard at once. Some three hours or so afterwards, we were all in the train together bound for the little Berkshire village. There were Sherlock Holmes, the hydraulic engineer, Inspector Bradstreet of Scotland Yard, and myself. Bradstreet had spread an ordnance map of the country upon the seat and was busy with his compasses drawing a circle with Iford as its centre. There you are. This circle is drawn at a radius of ten miles from the village. The place we want must be somewhere near that line. You said ten miles, I think, sir. At least ten. It was an hour's good drive. And do you think they brought you back all that way when you were unconscious? They must have done so. I have a confused memory of having been lifted and conveyed somewhere. What I cannot understand is why they should have spared you when they found you lying fainting in the garden. Unless the villain was softened by the woman's entreaties, after all. I hardly think that likely. I never saw a more inexorable face in my life. (laughs) Well, we shall soon clear all that up. So, I've drawn my circle. Now I only wish I knew at what point upon it (laughs) the folk we're in search of are to be found. I think I could lay my finger on it. Oh, really now, Mr. Holmes? You've formed your opinion already? (laughs) Come now, we shall see who agrees with you. I say it is to the south, for the country is more deserted there. And uh, I am for west. There are several quiet little villages there. And I am for north, because there are no hills there, and our friend says that he did not notice the carriage go up any. (laughs) A pretty diversity of opinion. Um, who do you give your vote to, Mr. Holmes? You are all wrong. (laughs) But we can't all be, unless it's east. Well, this is my point. Excuse me. We shall find them here, in the centre of the circle. Uh But a 12-mile drive. Six out and six back. Nothing simpler. You said yourself that the horse was fresh and glossy. Well, how could it be if it had gone 12 miles over heavy roads? Mm. It's a likely enough ruse. Well, we'll see. At least there's no doubt as to the nature of this game. None at all. They are coiners on a large scale. Mm. So this machine was being used to form the amalgam for coins. Yes, to take the place of silver. We've known for some time that a clever gang was at work. They've been turning out half-crowns by the thousand. (laughs) We've even traced them as far as Berkshire. We could get no further. But now, thanks to this lucky chance, I think we've got them. As we rolled into Eiffel Station, we saw a gigantic column of smoke which streamed up from behind a small clump of trees and hung like an immense ostrich feather over the landscape. What's that on fire, Station Master? The house, sir. When did it break out? A year. It was during the night, sir, but it's got worse and the whole place is in a blaze. Whose house is it? Dr. Beecher's. Is Dr. Beecher a German, tall and very thin? No, sir. Dr. Beecher's an Englishman. But he has a gentleman staying with him who I understand is a foreigner. And he looks as if a little good Berkshire beef would do him no harm. The station master had hardly finished his speech before we were all hastening in the direction of the fire. As the road topped a low hill, there in front of us was a great whitewashed building. It was spouting fire at every chink and window, while in the garden in front, three fire engines were striving to keep the flames under. That's it! There's the gravel drive and there are the rose bushes. And look! 
That's the window I jumped from. Well, at least you've had your revenge on them. There can be no question that the oil lamp set fire to the wooden walls when it was crushed in the press. Keep your eyes open in this crowd, Mr. Hatherley, for your friends of last night. I very much fear they're a hundred miles off by now. And Holmes's fears came to be realised. For from that day to this, no word has ever been heard either of the beautiful woman, the sinister German, or the silent Englishman. How our hydraulic engineer had been conveyed from the garden to the spot where he recovered his senses might also have remained a mystery, were it not for the soft soil, which told a very plain tale to Holmes when he examined it. You see here, Mr. Hathaway, you were carried out by two persons, one of whom has unusually large feet, and the other remarkably small ones. A lady, Elisa. This man Ferguson, or Dr. Beecher, or whatever his name is, must be the other one. It is most probable. Mm. Uh, being less bold or less murderous than his companion, he assisted the woman to bear you out of the way of danger. Well, I'm grateful to her for that. But otherwise, this has been a pretty business for me. I've lost my thumb, and I've lost a fifty-guinea fee, and what have I gained? Experience. But what good would Indirectly, that... Indirectly, it may be of value, you know. Yes. Uh, you have only to put it into words to gain the reputation of being excellent company for the remainder of your existence. Engineer's Thumb by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Roy Marsden played Sherlock Holmes, John Moffat, Dr. Watson, John Webb, Victor Hatherley, John Newton, Inspector Bradstreet, Moya Leslie, Elise, and Garrard Green, the ruthless coiner, Colonel Stark. The music was written by Joss Sanglier and played by Joss Sanglier and Elizabeth Fellows. Engineer's Thumb was dramatised by Grant Eustace and directed by Michael Bartlett for Daedalus Productions. <laughs>